Hello, I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. Uh, if you're like us, you'll have known that the price of your house has done nothing but gone up since you've purchased it. For years, we've heard about the housing bubble in the 905 region, and yet no one has really looked into the reasons why. That is until now. Mike Moffat is an economics professor with the Ivy School of Business at the University of Western Ontario, as well as a senior director with the Institute of Smart for Smart Prosperity, a think tank at the University of Ottawa. Recently, he has written a series of articles on his personal blog outlining the underlying causes of our rising housing prices in the 905 and Ontario at large. In summary, an influx of foreign students and Canadians from other provinces has caused a population boom in Toronto and the 905 region, yet housing policy has not kept up with the demand that this has placed on the housing market. The result has been bidding wars that have driven up prices astronomically, forcing younger families out of the market and many to seek housing options outside the 905 and even the country. Today, we invited Mike on to share his research and what the implications this can have for the Canadian economy, as well as our communities at large. Now, before we head into the interview, we'd like to remind you that if you're enjoying the work we're doing here on the 905er, please support us through our Patreon. For a small fee of only $7 Canadian a month, you'll be helping us produce this great content. As well, we are hosting monthly video calls for our patrons to get their feedback and see what we can do better. Links are in the show notes to sign up. For now... On with the show. I would like to thank Mike Moffat for joining us on the 905er today. Uh, thank you, Mike, for taking the time from your very busy schedule to come on uh, to talk housing prices in the 905 and Ontario as a whole today. Thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Your piece on your personal blog on your on your Medium uh, website, and we'll have links to it in the show notes for our, our listeners. Um, it's titled Ontarians on the move. And what I found interesting about it was that you've kind of put some data behind a lot of the assumptions that we in the 905 have about our housing prices uh, in the region. And I'm wondering, would you just be able to summarize quickly for our listeners what your findings are uh, in your research? Sure. And this is uh, something I've been looking at uh, for a few years. And the the genesis of this uh, was actually back when I sold a house in London, Ontario, back in 2017. And this was a time where not a lot was going on in London economically. Uh, you know, uh, the manufacturing job largely hadn't come back. Uh, you know, the university and college was, was doing pretty well. But, but overall, it was not an economy that was doing particularly well. And despite that, there was a bidding war for my house. It ended up going 15% over asking. And uh, three, uh, all three sort of families who were involved in this bidding war uh we're all currently living in downtown Toronto. So I thought, this is strange. Why is it that so many people from Toronto want to move to London, Ontario at a time where the economy really wasn't doing that well? You know, normally you would think if the economy is doing well, uh, house prices would go up. If the economy is not doing well, house prices would be flat and going down. But, but here was a bit of a paradox. And it turns out the sort of genesis of the piece was that, uh, Ontario started to see a population boom around early 2016, and it was a combination of international uh, workers, visa workers. So think like the sort of express entry, you know, some of the changes that had been made there, uh, other non-permanent residents like international students and so on. 
saw the province grow from about, you know, adding about 100,000 people a year to adding 200,000 people a year. Well, all of those people need to sort of live somewhere. And what happened was that, uh, you know, around 2015, 2016, the Toronto market started to get really hot again. Toronto got hot. Mississauga got hot. Oakville got hot. And families, young families that wanted to start a family couldn't afford those markets. So they kept driving further afield. They kept going to Kitchener and then Kitchener gets hot. So then those families start driving to Woodstock. Woodstock gets hot. And then finally they end up in London. So what the series looks at is these migration patterns that are all sort of driven by this search for affordable uh, real estate, or at least real estate that families can afford. So we're seeing this across the province. And this was this was all before COVID. You know, this was all before COVID turned the real estate market uh, completely bananas. But even before then, this big boom in population growth. Uh, spread throughout the province and caused rising housing prices for about a, a four or five year period. So, I mean, essentially what you're talking about is kind of a ripple effect of we have, as you said, these new Canadians, new comers to the province settling in the Toronto GTA area, uh, most because that's where, uh, you know, a lot of their communities are, understandably. But it's kind of like if you think about it, you drop this gigantic boulder of population into a pond, you're going to start the, these ripple effects per, like permeating out from that from that area. Uh, I'm wondering, like, do, do, do you see any signs of this stopping at any point geographically in the province? Like, you know, is Ottawa the the where the the crust of the wave breaks, or or is it just going to be kind of going all the way, you know, up to Thunder Bay and beyond? Yeah, it's it's really hard to tell because again we had we had this sort of pandemic, COVID kind of changed everything. But we were seeing signs of this as far as if we go southwest, as far as like Chatham, Kent, uh, Sarnia, and so on. You know, places are about three hundred kilometers, two hundred miles uh, uh, from Toronto. And that's exactly what happened. That we we had an influx of, of people come in, which in a lot of ways is really great for the province. You know, that if you look at the age of people who are coming in, they're all sort of between eighteen and twenty five. They had advanced degrees. You know, they're they're working in our, our tech sector, either in Toronto or Kitchener, Waterloo, which is a really good thing. For the province, you know, you have a province where the baby boomers are getting older. Uh, you know, we're having this sort of, you know, these sort of demographic issues. To have a, a influx of really talented young people is fantastic. But what happened was our ability or our desire to build houses and apartments for everyone caused this sort of ripple effect that we hadn't really planned on adding, going from adding 100,000 people a year, which we had been sort of consistently uh, for most of the 21st century to all of a sudden adding 200,000 uh, people per year. Now, whether or not this is going to continue is a really interesting question because part of what was driving it was Canadian policy. But I think part of what was driving it uh, was Donald Trump, to be honest, that it wasn't necessarily that the newcomers were coming from the United States, but you had talented tech workers, talented students who, you know, maybe in 2012, 2013, 2014, might have settled in the United States and are now going, uh, you know, with the situation with the uh, with the visas in the US and the overall political situation, I'm not going to go to Silicon Valley, I'm going to go to Toronto or Vancouver or somewhere else instead. It's tough to say whether or not those people are going to come back. You know, now we've got a Biden administration that's a lot more friendly uh, to foreign uh, tech talents. Um, and a housing market here in Ontario, which is really, really expensive. Like you can, you can go buy property in Texas for about half the price you can in Ontario. So you have to wonder, you know, if you're, if you're a talented, uh, you know, you're, you're a talented worker, 
uh, who's deciding to move to North America, you know, right now Ontario has some real downsides and we might not see those, those tech workers and international students come back at quite the same rate. So if, if um, and just so clarify for our listeners, when we're talking about uh, sort of seeing uh, surprising levels of population growth in places like London and further away from Toronto, um, which I know wasn't certainly wasn't predicted in any kind of provincial planning necessarily, that's not immigrants going straight to London. That's immigrants coming to the GTA and then people in the GTA moving out to London. So w- what are they doing out there? I mean, are they commuting back to the GTA or are they finding – are they retiring or are they uh, finding work out there? Yeah, and that, that's a really inter- interesting question. So, And we have to sort of break down, this is where it gets kind of technical, break down who is it that, that's moving uh, to, uh, to Ontario. And there's basically three tranches of, of people. Sort of say immigrants uh, are actually, ha- they've gone up, but you know, when we mean immigrant, it means that somebody's moving to Canada and actually taking Canadian citizenship is going to be here permanently. Um, that has gone up, but that's not actually the biggest category uh, that's gone up. And, and most of those do settle in the GTA, you know, Toronto, Mississauga, Brampton, uh, and, and so on. You know, and so they're, they're settling in Toronto. Visa workers are also mostly settling in Toronto and Kitchener-Waterloo because of the, because of the tech boom, and some in Ottawa as well. The, the Ottawa market is a little bit different than the rest of southwestern Ontario, uh, but overall, you know, they're disproportionately settling uh, settling in the Toronto market. International students are a little bit more spread out, so we are actually seeing quite a bit of them in London. We're getting a lot in Windsor and so on, so they're a little bit more dispersed. But what we are seeing is what I call the sort of musical chairs effect. And the idea is that Toronto gets expensive. So young families in Toronto, and often those young families are, uh, you know, recent uh, migrants to Toronto, either immigrants or visa workers or so on. They're like, oh, I want to start a family. I want to get out of this one bedroom condo, but I can't, I can't afford a three bedroom place in this market. So again, I'm going to go move to Kitchener-Waterloo. Then the Kitchener-Waterloo people get sort of priced out. They move to Brantford. The Brantford people get priced out, move to Woodstock, and you get this sort of musical chairs effect. We don't have great data on what's happening to the people who sort of, you know, have to move further afield. Uh, There is commuting data in the census, but the census only comes out every five years. So I suspect what was happening was even before the crisis, you were seeing a lot more work from home or at least sort of hybrid work from home models where, Somebody would move to Woodstock or London, uh, but still be working in, in a Mississauga, but they wouldn't be going to work every day. You know, maybe they'd be working from home two to three days a week and so on. But what we do know is that the jobs were still largely getting created in the GTA, in both 416 and 905. So a lot of those people who were moving to Woodstock and Ingersoll and Ilderton or London still had their jobs in the 416 and 905 and either were, were commuting or, or doing uh, work from home. It sounds like the, the trend uh, that we're hearing now, like the, the telecommuting because of COVID, the, the, how everybody's staying at home and, and, you know, doing the zoom call like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it sounded like that, that trend kind of started before COVID uh, is what you're telling me and that COVID kind of just, you know, sped it up or, or made it, made it into the mainstream. Uh, may, you know, that, I think like like these trends that we're seeing developing because of COVID, I don't see them going away. Um, and I'm wondering what the, what does that mean for the housing market? As people say, well, I can I can live in Ingersoll and still have the, the six figure job in Toronto. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. That that Ontario, particularly southern Ontario, uh, was was a little bit ahead of things when it came from work from home, just because of the, these these real estate pressures. I think it allowed us to be easier to adjust, and that's the conjecture. We really don't have good 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 data uh, on this, but but I think you're right that I, I think some of these trends are uh, are going are, are going to continue, which will mean that there is going to be less pressure on the Toronto's and the Oakville's uh, and the Milton's and so on. Where you say, okay, well, I can go work uh, or go live in a place like Tilsonburg. You know, we think of like Tilsonburg, the the, the Stomp and Tom uh, song about you know tobacco <laughs> workers and everything right. like that. That's not the case anymore. You know, like Tilsonburg is getting to be a very uh, you know it's a suburb of Toronto now, or or maybe a suburb of Hamilton. Uh, you know, it's getting to be more of a suburban place with a lot of sort of three and four bedroom built, uh, houses built. And I think we're going to see more of that, that, you know, as we can do sort of more work from home and you look at, OK, well, where can we actually buy or where can we actually build suburban homes? It's going to be in the places like your Tilsonburgs and your, and your Brantfords uh, and so on. And I think what we might see from the work from home, because it, do, it does have certain disadvantages as well. Right. That's, you know, not everybody likes working at their kitchen table. You can't see it right now, but I'm in my kid's playroom, but the, I've just got the camera set up. So it looks at least somewhat uh, professional. Not everybody, you know, not not everybody, uh, you know, is a fan of that. So you may end up seeing these sort of hybrid models where you, you get the sort of co-working places that you could go to two to three days a week where you could have your own sort of little area. You, you, your, your employer's still, you know, in, in Bay Street, downtown Toronto, but you're working in a co-working uh, center in a Woodstock that has, you know, better video facilities, has a big photocopier, things like that. So we might see that. And, you know, that could create some interesting opportunities uh, for, uh, for commercial real estate uh, in these sort of mid-sized communities. Uh, where you could get more of these sort of regional, smaller uh, branch offices popping up. Uh, overall, to, this to me seems like kind of a good thing. Um, the if population is spreading, you know, we have a big province, uh, <laughs> say the least. Um, if people are able to to have a wider choice of places to go, and they're not being Okay, to an extent, being forced out by uh, housing prices, but but it's also a matter of, of kind of choice that most most people would rather live with a little bit of space, you know, which is why we have suburbs, I guess. Um, that uh, this is a good development, and if it means that people can do that, I, I love that kind of hybrid model because most people we like to socialize, we like to see people in real life, uh, but we also like to spend time in our own houses and with our own families and not sitting in a car on the four hundred three. Uh, is that how you see it? Certainly can be, and I, I think like like most changes, and you know, I'm going to wear my social scientist uh, economist hat here. Uh, you know, you, most social changes have both upsides and downsides, and, and and the key is always to try and accelerate the upsides and, and manage uh, manage the downsides. So. Certainly, you know, a, a future where we're a little less house poor, where we can have more spaces, we're not buying ho homes for seven, eight, nine times, 10 times income, I think would be a fantastic, uh, fantastic thing. It's also really good for these smaller communities. You had a lot of smaller communities across southwestern Ontario. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm from London. My, my parents are uh, from a place called Wayland's Corners, population four, which is just outside of Lucan, <laughs> which is the big, which is the big city of about forty five hundred people. Um, 
you know, places like that have been shrinking for the last 20 to 30 uh, years. So, you know, to get a bunch of talented young people in this and to help, you know, those sort of uh, Main Street uh, properties, you know, get the, the coffee shops and the restaurants and, and things like that back, I think are fantastic for these smaller communities. So I think there's a lot of a lot of upside here. Uh, but I'm also a guy who works for an environmental NGO by the day. I worry about environmental issues. So you go, okay, well, you know, what is this going to mean if we're, we're, we're building a lot of, you know, using up some of Canada's best farmland, actually the planet's best farmland to build up, you know, 2,500 square foot four bedroom houses, you know, what happens if we're driving everywhere? So, you know, I think we do need to sort of manage that, figure out, you know, how can we get, how can we get more, more infill? How can we, uh, you know, have more climate-friendly housing? How can we have better transportation uh, options so it's not people having to, to drive everywhere? Uh, you know, how can we get, uh, you know, more sort of broadband issues? Because that's going to be one big one. If, if everybody's moving out to, you know, Whalen Corners, I can tell you firsthand that if you're out there, and you want decent broadband speed, what you do is you drive to Lucan and you get out your laptop and you're, you go to Tim Hortons and you either go inside the Tim Hortons or, or you're in the, in the parking lot. And, you know, sort of joke about that. But, you know, we've seen during the pandemic a lot of a lot of school kids doing their homework outside of a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons in the parking lot because they don't they don't have adequate broadband. So there are, you know, I think on net is probably a good thing, but there's a bunch of challenges uh, that, that we're going to have to navigate. And, you know, that's going to it's going to require some creative thinking at, at all levels. Of- uh, I was just going to say, Mike, you're, ahead, kind of, you're kind of preaching to the converted there. My my in-laws uh, live in a similar situation. And yeah, the the broadband is is absolutely brutal in the rural parts of this uh, of this province. Um, I, I did want to touch upon one of the things that you you've been saying on your your piece is that the housing issue is a matter of like a supply and demand principle. Uh, basically, the supply is not catching up with demand uh, in the province. So right now, there's somebody listening to this podcast and they're shouting at the at the uh, at their uh, iPhone or, or whatever, saying, "Well, why don't we just build more, more, more housing? Why, you know, why don't we just let the developers build, build, build? That's what they want to do. Why don't we just let them build?" And I'm wondering, like, it, is this a, a failure of the free market to kind of catch up with that demand uh, that, that that's out there? Well, I would say, you know, that the, the housing market has components of it that, that are, are free market, but a lot of it's not. I mean, it's a very sort of planned economy, and and, and particularly areas where the housing market doesn't work too well. So I would say, you know, Silicon Valley. It's like we literally took the worst part of free market economics where the sort of, you know, the rich get rich and the poor get poorer and the worst parts of Stalinist planning and sort of combine them into <laughs> into a hybrid where That's it's exactly like, okay, you've right. got this sort of planning and everybody gets a veto and everything's really complicated and you have multiple levels of government and, and nothing nothing gets done. So, and I think that's, you know, the concern I have with the, with the housing. It's not that we failed on the free market side or that we failed on the, the planning side, but we, t- we took the worst elements of both and sort of fused them uh, together. Um Again, you know, what's, what's going to happen in the future is really going to depend on whether or not those international students and visa workers come back. But if they do, yeah, we're going to have to do something on, on the planning side. Uh, you know, we are going to have to have more infill. People are still going to want, you know, some people are going to want to live in Tilsonburg, but other people are going to want to live in, in Toronto. And trying to figure out how we can both build that infill and, and at the same time, 
get community acceptance is really hard. And you read these stories about, uh, you know, places going up in East York. And, and I don't mean to pick on East York because this happens everywhere. But, you know, community members in East York say, well, you know, you're going to take out this parking lot and this parking lot right, is the right. heart of our community. And you go like, well, it's a parking lot. Come on, guys. But, you know, I, I live in a neighborhood in Ottawa and we do the exact same thing here. So trying to figure out how we can, you know, how we can build more housing and, and still have it, uh, you know, still have it go through all the sort of zoning uh, rules and, and still have it be, you know, get community acceptance. Because if people won't accept it, you know, the politicians are going to sort of follow that. Uh, so that is going to limit what we can do. But certainly, I, I think we do need more housing issues. And again, as, as being uh, somebody who's more environmentally minded, you know, I have real concerns that, that if we don't solve this infill issue, what's basically going to happen is over the next 20 or 30 years, we're just going to pay over, over the green belt because we simply won't have the political acceptance to keep it. That you're not going to price out an entire generation of, of kids out of the housing market and not have that have political consequences. Um, what we're seeing, I, I, one of the things we're seeing now, and to an extent, it's, it's you know, the Caledonia story is a, is a story about First Nations, but it's also about the pressure on on uh, developers and them kind of leaping over the green belt. So Caledonia is literally inches outside the green belt, uh, and it's like, well, here we, we don't have to worry about all those regulations that we do if we're in Hamilton, uh, and that seems to be a, a, a real issue. And and yeah, I mean, you, or you, you're not stopping sprawl at that point. All you're doing is moving your sprawl somewhere else. Um, which is just as bad. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's almost like every city needs its green belt, but we also, ultimately, we have to go the intensification route. Uh, there's no real question about that from an environmental perspective, but we seems to me, and you can disagree with this or, or whatever, that, you know, the, the craziness in the Canadian system is like, hey, we're saying, okay, you can't, we, we, we need to intensify, everybody agrees. Um, but you can't build in single-family home neighborhoods because they're middle class, and we don't want to upset them. Uh, so the only place you can you can build is is an urban growth center or the absolute downtown, and you can only build a high-rise. Uh, and it's like we've taken the whole of Ontario and built, taken it down to about a two-square-mile area <laughs> in the whole province. And it's like it's yeah, no wonder we're getting problems when we're we're going from from one extreme of just let everybody just build out forever, and we'll have sprawl more sprawl nation and going to the other of okay the only you know you can't build anywhere now uh is is well it's kind of a leading question but is the answer this kind of in the middle uh development this kind of jet you know what's called gentle density things like that uh, do you think that's the way to go yeah absolutely and trying to figure out again how to get that uh, community acceptance uh you know i would love I, I i you know and it all comes down to the municipal level and i think we're going to have to have a series of sort of carrots and, and sticks uh you know i think this is one sort of opportunity you know COVID ha has created that that our municipalities are in need of money so i would love to see the federal and provincial governments come in and say hey look you know we we're gonna we're, we're willing to help you out uh, financially uh, with this, but you know we're we're going to need to see some zoning changes, and we're going to need to see some more sort of aggressive uh, plans when it when it when it comes to infill and that missing middle. Because you're because you're right. I mean, you either get a bunch of single family homes or 
you know, you get these huge towers. There's, you know, we can't, you know, my neighborhood in Ottawa, I live in a neighborhood called the Glebe. You know, we're not building that much big things. And then over just, you know, over in Little Italy, which isn't far from here, you know, we have currently like Ottawa's largest condo tower getting built and there's like nothing in between. So it's like you can have three floors or 63, but you can't have anything in between. And I don't think that's particularly sustainable. But I, I yeah, think you, you also, if I could for a moment, I actually think you, you also hit on something that's really important that it's a sort of unintended consequences of, of a lot of a lot of our policies that you're right. I think in the sense that the green belt doesn't didn't con, con, uh, constrain sprawl, it just moved it. Uh, now, I think, again, I'm an environmentalist. I'm, I want to keep the green belt. I think overall it was a good policy, but you have to have those other supporting policies. And I think that happens too often with, with housing where we try and solve a problem. And this is a classic public policy problem. We, we solve one problem and create another. So one of the things we saw back in, and you guys will probably remember it better than I will, but back in, in 2017 and early 2018, there was a big house price bubble in the GTA, you know, centered, centered around Mississauga, but just in general, the 905. And then both the federal and the provincial government came out with a series of policies to, to burst that bubble, right? There was policies around, uh, you know, the down payments you had to put on a million dollar home. Uh, you know, we saw some interest rate uh, rises and, and uh, we, you know, a number of policies that way to try and slow that growth in Mississauga and Oakville and, and downtown Toronto. Well, what ended up happening was, yes, it, it constrained those markets for a while. It kind of caused those market freeze. But then that's when we really saw the home prices pick up in London and Woodstock because it didn't it didn't eliminate that demand for family housing. All it did was just push it down the 401. So, you know, we have to be really careful in these sort of public policies, particularly when you're, you're fighting the symptoms of it. When we go, oh, well, the symptoms are a bunch of speculators and, and, and high home prices, so we need to burst this bubble. Well, we successfully did that, but then we sort of kicked a, a bunch of families down the 401 and they end up just commuting back to Toronto if they're not working from home. So we have to be really, really careful with the sort of unintended consequences of, of policies. Uh, well, I was just going to say um, that's something we always read in the in the media, like in the Global Mail, like oh, the the Ontario the GTA housing bubble, um, you know, the bu the bubble's going to burst, and how long can the bubble? Stay? And I'm wondering, you know, because I believe words matter. Are we framing this in the wrong context? Like that, because I've been hearing all these stories about the GTA housing bubble for 10, 10 plus years now. It hasn't burst. It shows no signs of bursting. Um, like houses on my street, uh, I, I live in a very modest house. They're going for just shy of a million dollars now. Um, and I, I don't, I don't see that. I don't, you know, I don't see that price plummeting any any time soon. Are, are we? Are we really? Re are we not framing this conversation properly uh, to really get to address the, the 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 solutions we need to to put in place? Yeah, I, I think that that's right. Uh, so one uh, one of my hobbies is to go back, like go back into like Google Google News and, and and search by date and go Toronto housing bubble and then search year two thousand thirteen. You will find you will literally find like every week in two thousand and thirteen there was an article about Toronto's housing bubble, Toronto's condo boom, um, that this was soon going to burst. 
prices in Toronto have more than doubled, have almost tripled since 2013. If you had listened to the Toronto media back in 2013, you would be absolutely broke right now. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have a, a home, but you might own shares in Sears or something. I, I, I don't know. Or maybe you bought some oil stocks. Uh, so, you know, and predictions are hard, right? And, you know, I'm sure I will say five things on this podcast that five years from now will be cringeworthy. So, you know, I, that sort of fully, I, I fully under, understand that. I would say we, we have to split out what was happening pre-pandemic and, and during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, yeah, I, I, I think it was largely driven by sort of supply and demand fundamentals. Yes, you, you you know, for all this talk of this bubble bursting in, in 2017, 2018, prices went up to their pre-peak level within like 18 months, right? It was, you know, you had this, this big escalation of prices. It came down, it came down, you know, about 15 to 20%. And then it went back up and, you know, it was like nothing had changed. I think during the pandemic, things have gotten weird. And I could, you know, I see a very good, strong case for a pandemic because it's not just Toronto. Like you're seeing, you know, North Bay prices are up like $75,000. Most communities in Ontario, prices are up between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollars, and that's not really driven by population growth or any sort of supply and demand fundamentals. That's driven by you know really low interest rates, coupled with white collar professionals who have who have saved a lot of money during this pandemic because they're not going on vacation, they're not driving to work, their expenses are way down, and we're seeing a variety of asset classes. Like I, I'm a I'm a sports card fan. I'm a sports fan, sports card fan. You look like every week, like there's a new record, like some Wayne Gretzky rookie card has sold for new amounts. We saw what happened to, you know, we see what happens to Bitcoin, you know, that whole sort of GameStop price escalation in January. So right now uh, it is getting driven by some just funny, crazy money. And I could see a correction in that. And the, the silly thing is like, even if house prices went down 30%, we're just back where we are at the start of the pandemic, right? So even a massive correction just brings us back to prices from early 2020, which were already incredibly high. So, you know, it's it's kind of shown how out of hand things have gotten. And again, before the pandemic, I, I would argue it largely was driven by fundamentals. Since the start of the pandemic, it, it is really just some, some funny money pushing up the value of everything. It actually raises an interesting point, which is somewhat of a tangent from from what we're talking about. But for every person that the pandemic has been a disaster for, there's someone, usually middle class, who it's actually not been bad for. Um, I, yeah, you, you, there's there's an interesting side to this that, that, that the people who have really suffered through this thing have been the people who always seem to suffer. So uh, racialized people, working class people, people on low incomes. And you know, as usual, the people coming out smiling are uh, the people who were smiling to start with. Um, it, it, it's a, how, I mean, how do you think this is going to shake down? Do you think? I mean, I guess those people buying houses in who, who were in downtown Toronto or whatever are, are thinking this is a permanent change. I'm not going back to the office, uh, so this is my new normal, regardless of vaccines and the rest of it. Um, so. Do you think that's kind of evidence of a, of a permanent change, or do you think that we are seeing a bubble now that that people have done something weird for a year and they're going to regret it? I, I again, I, I'm going to say say something that's going to be cringeworthy in five years. I make <laughs> predictions. Predictions are hard. Uh, I, 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 I would. I would 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I would say that within the next 24 months, I think it's more likely than not we do see a, a uh, correction. Uh, in my mind, it's just how large is it? You know, if it's 10%, then, you know, in a, at a time where, when how prices are up 35% a year, that's not a big deal. If it's more than that, then that becomes problematic, particularly if you were one of the people who, who bought at, at the top of the bubble. Um but yeah, I, I do, you know, the longer this goes on, and, and I tend to be a skeptic in the sense that I tend to, you know, whenever there's any sort of discussion of this changes everything, I always bet the under. Uh, I always think that's the safe bet that, that uh, you know, more things stay the same than they change. But I'm starting to come around to this idea that particularly the, the work from home thing that this may end up being more of a, of a permanent change uh, than we think. And again, the one I look at, maybe it's because I spend most of my time at universities, is whether or not the international students come back at the same rate. I think that could really change the dynamics uh, of, of this province. Because, you know, we, we, we hear a lot that, you know, what, what's driving up, driving up home prices is international money. Which, which is true, but I, th- I think it's a little bit mi- misleading. I think people sort of think of like Russian oligarchs, you know, buying up large portions of Tilsonburg or, or something ridiculous like that. But <laughs> what, 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 it, what it largely is, is, you know, kids coming over, you know, sort of upper class kids coming over from chi- uh, China or Taiwan or India or someplace that their, their, their parents are fairly well off. And they go, well, my, my kid's going to be here for four years. So in, instead of renting a place, why don't I just buy a small house or buy a condo and, and things like that? And that's been really driving up a lot of a lot of the real estate prices. It has been sort of foreign money, but not in this weird sort of speculative sense that we think about, but in rather of like, okay, well, you've got some some high income individuals and their kids are coming over, so they're you know they're they're they're, they're buying they're buying property uh, for their kids, and that's you know that's nothing unique and international. Again, I'm from London, Ontario. You know, we've had generations of rich kids from Toronto who go to Western and their parents, you know, buy them buy them a condo or apartment or a small house. So if you live in a college or university town, you know, you you are you're used to that. But now, you know, the kids are coming from Taiwan instead of uh, instead of Toronto. So that's the big question to me, whether or not the international students come back at the same rate. If they do, then I think the correction, if we have one, will be relatively mild. If we don't, and we don't have that same level of international money coming in, things could get ugly in a couple of years. Uh, when you say ugly, I guess, I mean, ugly for homeowners, <laughs> ugly for, people, for property owners. I mean, we, we keep on talking about the shortage of um, affordable housing, uh, which is almost a separate thing. And, and, and I mean, one of my kind of pet peeves, I guess, is, is this idea that we're expecting the market to provide affordable housing when the market wants to make the most money it can no why would we build the cheap stuff you know (laughs) um how do you think i mean how does that all fit into into this picture of 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 uh of like you say the communist market (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and, and that's you know that's the sort of you know i say the the worst parts of of both worlds where we don't, you know, we don't think of sort of an upside for communism, but one of the, the good things that, that communism tended to do in a lot of these countries is build a lot of, of cheap, low income, kind of brutalist cement housing for people. 
And that's a sort of good side of communism that we're not getting here, right? We're not getting governments building a lot of, of cheap housing. And that's been one of the, you know, I've been largely focusing on what this means for middle class families. But, you know, one of the real tragedies of this is, is what it means for the sort of lower 20% of the population. You know, we saw starting in about 2017 or so, right when the population started increasing, uh, lo- longer lines or longer waiting lists, I should say, for, for social housing. You know, it had been relatively flat. And then all of a sudden, the, the wait list for social housing were going eight, up 8, 9, 10% a year. So it was affecting the lower end of the market as well. And, you know, this is this is a big, big problem. And you're right, the uh, the market is not going to solve that simply because there's just there's not enough money and not enough land to, you know, do that profitably. You know, if you can if, if you can build a bunch of one bedroom condos and, and sell them to, you know, tech 25 year old tech workers, you're going to do that instead of, you know, selling selling it to the single mom who's who's just struggling to get by. So I think there is a real role here for, for government to you know do something about social housing, do something about the homelessness problems. And that's you're only going to solve that with shovels in the ground. And you're going to have to do that in urban centers because you know it's it's one thing for you know dad's an accountant and we're going okay we're going to go move in tilsonburg and maybe we'll work from home but you know if you're if you clean hotel rooms in toronto you're not going to move to tilsonburg i mean you just you just can't right there's there's no job opportunities there uh for you or at least not not nearly enough uh the, the the commuting is not really an option and obviously you can't work from home so, you know, that sort of social housing for, for, you know, and that's a sort of, you know, cleaning hotels and trials is our best case scenario. And then you have people who are even more economically marginalized than that. That housing has to be in the large urban centers. Um, and the only, you know, Mark is not going to build that. That's only government can do that. And I think I've, people listening to this podcast have heard me go on about this before, but I come originally from a country which has huge sort of fields and fields of socialized you know what we call council housing that's usually pretty high quality and usually um uh you know they're not really building it anymore but then the stock they have is still pretty extensive and i feel like there's the mistake in north america we think well you know we can't pay for everything it's like well no this people pay still pay rent in this these places you know these these places pay for themselves decades ago uh it's not a burden on society for um uh for municipalities to be basically the biggest landlord in the area you know um so it's yeah it's i mean i'm I'm going off on my own rant now but it's it's very much uh something i feel we need to have a sort of grown-up discussion about that just is not happening uh at present uh, as far as i can see anyway well, well, absolutely. So, I mean, we we essentially stopped as a province in a country building social housing around 1975 or so. And, and it was just for that reason. It's like, oh, well the, well, the government can't afford to do this and, you know, it's costing money. And I go, well, it's a couple problems with that argument. I, I mean, first, you still pay for it anyway. Like, if you don't provide adequate housing... You know, yeah. you know what? What are all the the bills that you have to pay? Like all of the social problems that cause. But secondly, you know, just from a pragmatic sense of point of view, imagine if the federal and provincial government had bought up a ton of land in Toronto in the late seventies. What would that be worth now? You know, it's this very sort of short term view of like, oh, we're not going to build anything because there'll be some bills today, and we'll have a deficit today. 
But, you know, imagine what that the, those buildings and land would be worth now. And then, you know, when Roland, you're right, all of the sort of revenue from, from the tenants that would have lived there, that, you know, those things would have more than paid for themselves. But we weren't willing, for whatever reason, to take that sort of the short-term bill so we pay for it in the long run. And we see this again and again in public policy. You know, when we when we uh, uh, sold off the 407, you know, it's another example. It's like, well, you know, we want to sort of solve the deficit. So we're going to sell off this big piece of infrastructure and get a couple billion now. OK, well, what would be that that worth if we still own that and still had gotten the revenue? So, uh, you know, there's been this real short termism uh, when it comes to infrastructure projects for the last 40 some odd years. And that certainly includes housing. Um, so I, I want to, cause I see we're, we're coming up on our, on our deadline to, to end this. So I kind of want to finish off the podcast on a, a bit of a broader note. Um, I, I kind of want to get a sense of if we don't solve this issue now, you know, a lot of our economy is tied to housing, uh, land, you know, real estate, land development, um, where per- personal finance is all tied towards the idea of you own a house, you build uh, some equity in your house, and you know you're able to build a build on on top of that. If we don't get a handle on this now, Mike, like wh- what's the potential consequences for the Canadian economy as a whole down the road? Well, I, I think you're essentially going to have a lost generation, right? Because you know, again, I'm in my 40. We we bought our first house in 2004 for you know 100 and, brand new house, three bedrooms in London, Ontario, for 168 thousand dollars, which at the time was like more money than I had ever seen. And I thought, like, oh my goodness, like, I'm how am I ever going to pay off this mortgage? And it's now the house is probably you know if, if someone were to sell it now, uh, you know, go for three to four times that. Uh, but you have this generation of, of younger people that, you know, unless they come from well-off parents, they can't break into the market and they're constantly renting. Um, they can't save money. I, I, I think that that has economic consequences, right? That they're not able to sort of build any kind of savings and, and, and sort of create uh, roots in, in, in the community. But I think it also has political consequences, right? That you've just got this uh, generation who feels like they've been cheated and they're not entirely wrong. And, you know, I, I think the sort of worst case scenario of this, I mean, we're, we're seeing these sort of effects play out in, in places like Silicon Valley, right? Where it's like, okay, nobody can kind of afford to live there and you've got all this money and all this real estate. Um, and all of the sort of social problems that, you know, are, are, that, that we're seeing uh, in, in the Bay Area. And that was, you know, that was at least tolerable when things were going well. But now uh, you're, you're seeing a lot of tech companies go, well, we don't want to be here anymore. It doesn't make sense for anymore. We're going to go move to Colorado or Austin or someplace else. And that's what I worry for the Toronto market, the Toronto and Vancouver markets specifically. Like they could be, uh, they could be real engines of, of economic growth, or we could, just, you know, or they could just be, you know, playgrounds for the rich and the sort of min- the talented middle class kids have to go somewhere else, and they may not even, you know, stay stay in Canada. So I do worry about that, and I think if we are going to to have sustainable long run economic growth. We're going to have to figure out a solution for both uh, for both Toronto and Vancouver. So, you know, you know, middle class millennials and, and Gen Gen Z or Gen Z, I should say, being Canadian, uh, you know, so they can uh, afford to live there. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it on that note for uh, for today. Thank you very much, Mike, for coming on and sharing your your expertise with us. And we look forward to possibly having you on for a future episode. 
probably on this topic again because I don't think it's going away anytime <laughs> soon. Well, absolutely. We, we, we can, uh, you know, when, when there is a sort of housing price correction, we can uh, come back on this and, and, and see how many of uh, how many of my predictions were wrong. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.